Welcome to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. Okay. Uh, is psychology actually rooted in paranormal experiences? What do psychotherapists do if they run into something strange in the neighborhood? And if they talk about it, what do their colleagues think? Well, uh, you want, uh, Ben's doing the producer thing, so welcome to the 938th edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno, coming to you live from WON 1240 AM and FM radio in Woonsocket, Rhode Island, on the Paranormal Radio app from TalkStream Live, on YouTube, and via TuneIn.com. Uh, those mindful questions have to do with our show today, of course. We bring you a returning guest with an, on an unexpected subject. Dr. Paul J. Leslie is a therapist, educator, author, and international trainer who employs creative approaches to working with clients to the point of recognizing the presence of the paranormal in some cases. He is the author of seven books that I know of, including Shadows in the Session, The Presence of the Anomalous in Psychotherapy. Currently the coordinator of the Behavioral Sciences Program at Aiken Technical College in South Carolina. This is Dr. Leslie's fourth appearance on the show. His website, drpaulleslie.com. So Dr. Paul Leslie, welcome back to Behind the Paranormal. Well, it's a pleasure to uh, be speaking with you for a fourth time. So thanks for hey, having me. You know what they say, fourth time's the charm, huh? <laughs> Something like that, yeah. Well, you know, maybe, uh, maybe not in marriage, but uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think you get it right at some point, but maybe not. Um, so I guess we'll just hop right into it. So, Dr. Paul, does psychology really have roots in the paranormal? Well, absolutely, and this is something that abs- that just surprised me. Uh, a few years back, I was doing some research for a, a book, and I found that. Uh, in the early days of psychology, there was an undercurrent, and uh, not just an undercurrent, I'd say an overcurrent, and the, uh, the uh, what we would today call psychical research. And there were many um, high-level uh, psychologists, high-level scientists who were studying uh, this emerging field of psychical research, which is basically looking at aspects of what we would consider the paranormal through uh, the lens of science, trying to understand it. And psychology, we we really kind of start the year that most of the textbooks give is 1879, when a German psychologist, Wilhelm Wundt, first really opened what we're told is the first laboratory for studying uh, psychology uh, experimentally. Now, that's not quite uh, accurate, uh, according to some, because uh, William James, who we we acknowledge as the father of American psychology, had opened at Harvard a lab in 1876. Well, what's fascinating is William James also, in addition to the many other brilliant things he did, he was an avid researcher in the field of psychical research. And for that reason, uh, some of his contributions, uh, many feel, have uh, have been kind of overlooked uh, in that realm, such the fact that more hard-nosed um, uh, scientists such as uh, uh, Wilhelm Wundt uh, get the credit for uh, being the uh, founder of psychology. But you, you think about it, if 1879, we're talking about 1882, so around that same time, the Society for Psychical Research was founded in uh, Britain. Now, at that time, 
this society was set up to study, again, scientifically, these strange things that, that you gents uh, spent a lot of time uh, studying. And founding members were people like Alfred Russell White, a biologist who uh, was a contemporary of Charles Darwin and the theory of evolution. William Crux, who uh, did a lot of uh, research uh, kind of helping to solidify work on the electron. Oliver Lodge, who's a renowned physicist. Aunt Marie Curie. Uh, the, the renowned chemist. So these are some pretty uh, big names in the scientific field. So there is a real overlapping uh, between uh, psychology and science and medicine. And uh, a lot of strange things were going on uh, at that time. So between, again, if we set this, this stage between 1889 and 1909, psychical researchers presented on early academic platforms. As a matter of fact, the first four International congresses of psychology were organized by psychical researchers, including uh, Frederick Myers and Charles Roche. Now, by the way, Roche is a, was a Nobel laureate for his research on anaphylactic sh- shock. So there, there's there's a lot of stuff going on here that when I was going to school, I didn't hear a lot about. So it's it's fascinating to kind of start cracking open these stories. It's amazing. I didn't hear a lot about that either. Did you, Ben? Well, in psychology classes. No, no. They they mostly just were, were uh, like, all right, here's uh here's a big book of of uh, of stuff, and that's about it. And maybe you get a little bit of abnormal psych, maybe. Um, but that's that's uh, only if you're lucky. Now, my yeah. my question is this: so between 1882 to now. What changed? You know, it seemed like it was taken pretty seriously at one point in time, you know, thanks to our fun 19th century German friends who have given us a lot over the years. Um, What changed? Well, it it is a, a situation not unlike what we see today. To where uh, you know there's a, a certain paradigm and then certain political uh, status that when you start um, getting involved with uh, differing opinions, uh, people fall out with each other. Uh, certain um, borders are erected and walls between divisions. I mean, um, uh, the Society for Psychical Research had significant empirical contributions to such fields as the study of hallucinations, eyewitness accounts, uh, the field of hypnosis, and disassociative disorders. Now, with all of that really high-level data that they're collecting, uh, they were often accused by people who <clears throat> excuse me, did not want that kind of information included in psychology. So they were accused of, uh, you know, it, uh, impeding scientific progress, uh, fraud. Everyone's a, a fraud, apparently. Uh, their their uh, methodology was uh, incompetent. They were accused of, in, in some cases, of, of even a mental illness. I mean, Wilhelm Bunt, uh, again, who's acknowledged a lot of times by, as the father of psychology, felt it was, uh, it, it, you deceived yourself, he, he wrote, if you investigate uh, these kind of things. Yet again, there's people like Notzring and, and Roche who were very scientific. They weren't spiritualist. Uh, a lot of times the Society for Psychical Research were accused of uh, being really uh, spiritualist. Now, they did have some members that, but uh, what we see is that a lot of people in psychology were really more driven by their anti-religious views as they're concerned that religion and spiritualism would find its way into psychology, 
then they really took the time to look at the data. Now, this is, uh, again, it's fascinating to me because when uh, William James founded the American Society for Psychical Research in 1884, he was one of the most prominent psychologists in the world. I mean, he was even uh, president of the, the British uh, Association, I think, in 1894. But at that time, there was a major onslaught from people like Vaught, James Cattell, Edward Titchener, G. Stanley Hall. These are all names of very prominent early psychologists who fought William James tooth and nail uh, about these kind of things. And James just, uh, he, he definitely uh, stuck to his guns and his, his quote, which is fascinating, he says, There's an, the evidence is good enough to hang a man 20 times over, he wrote in the 1896 edition of Psychological Review. So to answer your question in a long-winded uh, way, Ben, that what happened was this concern that by engaging in those kind of uh, areas of research that the new field of psychology would look less and less like a science. But William James, who said, well, if this involves consciousness, which it does, then shouldn't this be studied and studied scientifically? And a lot of times people forget that the early uh, proponents in the uh, Society for Psychical Research also uh, uh, debunked a lot of spiritualists and debunked a lot of pseudo mediums. So it's the same kind of thing that, that we're seeing today. I mean, recently I saw uh, uh, Dr. Stephen Pinker, who's a brilliant psychologist, who, who just said unequivocally that there's no, no chance that uh, ESP can even exist. And he was taken to task by Dr. Uh, Rupert Sheldrake, who's a, a Cambridge biologist, and said, well, let's debate it because I have plenty of evidence and let's look at their evidence and the research. And uh, so what does Pinker do? He says, uh, I don't have enough bandwidth to be able to engage in those kind of things. I'm too busy and, and all these things. These are the same kind of thing, maybe not bandwidth, that they did uh, way back when where James was trying to get these people involved in the research. He said, well, if, if the protocols need work, come help me. And no one did. So it's the same kind of thing, the old, as they say in parapsychology, the sheeps and the goats. Some people are more inclined to be open to it and, and some a lot less. Mm. Now, uh, Paul, do you mind if I read a paragraph from your book, uh, Shadows in the Session? Oh, no, go ahead. Thank and, you. And seek your comment. Uh, this is, uh, according to the Pew Research Center in 2009, 15% of people have consulted psychics. Um, and then another independent uh, research firm has found that the psychic medium profession has consistently grown over the past few years, leading to the projected revenue of $2.2 billion in 2019. Jeez. The book was released in 2019. It is noteworthy that while the intuitive field has been growing steadily, the psychotherapy field appears to be in a decline, with as many as 33% fewer people seeking therapy as compared with just two decades earlier. All right, now, so are you an endangered species because of, because of what you just said, the change, <laughs> or what's going on here? Uh, I, I, it's an interesting way to look at it. Uh, I may be an endangered species. I, I think we'll always still have a little bit uh, people who seek out uh, psychotherapists uh, before psychics, but uh, what, what the research and the data uh, is showing is that there's a lot of people who find that because the uh, psychic mediums uh, are kind of in their belief system, they actually get sometimes more 
uh, help, mental emotional help, from talking to a psychic medium, particularly when it comes to grief. Uh, fascinating study out of Australia, and I wish I could cite the journal, and I apologize, I can't, um, but it's uh, essentially comparing psychologists, psychotherapists, uh, to psychic mediums when dealing with, with clients. They found that the psychic mediums generally did as well and in some cases slightly better. And uh, there's plenty of explanations uh, for that, but a lot of people in the study who had sought both, had experienced both, felt that a lot of times uh, that specific issue, that specific uh, context of interaction, they felt uh, uh, more comfortable or uh, felt they got uh, more results. Uh, and uh, I'm kind of one of the ones who's led the charges, what well, we need to find out, not so much for psychologists to become psychics, but to find out what else is going on other than just a, a psychic reading. I think there's more contextual variables going on there uh, than just that. But it does make one wonder if you see the explosion that's happened with uh, all of the, the last decade, all of the uh, psychic uh, television programs, the, the paranormal television shows, uh, podcasts, all these kind of things. In some ways, I feel we're kind of mirroring that late 1800s, early 1900 time period because we're still having both sides uh, arguing about, you know, uh, the study of the paranormal or psychical research is unscientific, whereas others are saying, no, it's actually very scientific. Uh, if so, you you have this debate that they had back then. You also see an upswing of maybe we're not sitting around a séance table uh, with uh, Lenora Piper, who was a, a, a psychic that William James thoroughly investigated. We came away very impressed. Well, we don't have the séance tables, but we have the gallery readings with the, like Teresa uh, Caputo and uh, uh, John Edward and these more you know famous. Uh, psychics and their numbers seem to keep growing and growing. So in, in, in some ways, I kind of feel if we took away the internet, we're kind of going back in time. Mm, that's that's a really interesting point. Um, it's it's fascinating because as, as time has gone on, especially over the last few years, um, my personal sort of uh, opinion on on the subject of the paranormal has changed slightly. I still the core stuff kind of is is similar for for me, but um, I'm thinking less mechanistically and more symbolically because sim- we 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 symbols symbols are, are things in our lives that have meaning but they also serve a function and that doesn't mean that they're just sort of this abstract thing like oh it's a symbol of this like ah this this pen is a symbol of of me asking questions it's 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 an instrument that i use to write down my thoughts and to get them out of my of my brain and put them on paper and i i think it's interesting that this postmodern sort of view hasn't left. We we've thrown out all the stuff, and I'm going to take it back to our 19th century German friends because I I'd argue that they that they have a lot more influence over the way we think than we give them credit for. Um, specifically, you know, we'll we'll chuck it over to um, to our buddies Marx and Engel, right? So how mm-hmm. we view history is is different because of them, right? You know, we we believe that history is scientific. We can point to exact events and say, hey, we know the essence of this event. We know what happened because X, Y, Z. But we don't. You know, we know we we can't know the essence of things. We we have ideas and subjective, you know, viewpoints from people because it's all stories from different parties. Now, follow me here. Um, this idea of taking everything and throwing it all out and then starting again, which is eventually you have nothing, right? 
So now we're 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 getting to this point where we're like, okay, well, you know, we've thrown out everything up until now. I guess we'll have to pick up things that we kind of had before, right? So you have sort of this ultra spiritualist, you know, mindset, I suppose. We won't call it that. We'll say there's there's something that can connect with me on a level that science just can't because you know if you let's let's say you know the scientific method's pretty impersonal right would is that probably a safe assumption so if that yeah. if that's the case then it's in, it's impersonal you know you sit down you're you're across the table from you know let's say a psychic medium or somebody who's doing a reading and you connect with that person you know i i don't i'd say you know i've i, I know a few people in in the psychological field and over the last two years, particularly, the amount of, of phone calls they've been doing for sessions rather than, you know, sit down face to face has changed. So mm-hmm. I, I'd say that, that num- number, numbers have changed over time and this sort of connection has changed. So perhaps I would posit that it's the connection between the two people that matters. And it's understanding their experience, right? So if somebody sits down in a session with you and says, hey, you know, my fine china's been thrown around. Uh, you know, a medium's likely to connect and understand that more more than you know, say you know, um, you know, Sigmund Freud Jr. down the street. Is that a safe assumption? Yeah, I I, I would agree with that. Um, and just in the field of psychotherapy, after many years of looking at all the common factors that work, it's generally what we call the therapeutic alliance, the connection between the uh, client and the therapist. And so when you go in to a to have a psychic uh, read you, uh, and, and it's a serious thing as in like you want to connect with your, your deceased son or, or something that's pretty heavy, there's already got to be some level of belief and comfort with that process. Whereas uh, in my field, people, most people still don't know what, what goes on in the psychotherapy session, but just... Um, Sitting with a psychic who's open, who and and they say these are messages that uh, are coming from your son. I'm not judging. I'm just telling you. And it, for a lot of, uh, I'm talking about the the ethical uh, people who who are claimed to be psychic. Mm. Uh, it's not. I need to continue to see you for years and years at a time. It's kind of here's your message, and and after a session or two, we wrapped up. Whereas unfortunately, uh, psychotherapy in some cases just can't do that, just because the nature. Of, of the uh, the interaction, but I, I think it, it is that that uh, that connection between the psychic or the therapist is is what what drives that overall satisfaction, that feeling that I'm I'm getting better if I'm the client. Mm. Do you do you think um, how we as a society here here in the modern world, the way we view you know not just our lives but death. You know, it's it's sort of like it's it's an end. It's over. It's done. Um, you know, the, the traditional views have been all thrown out, and it's it's ter- It's a terrifying concept, right? To to think, okay, well, I, it's over. It's done. Do you do you think that sort of this this sort of the modern view of I guess you know death or or, or any sort of change plays into this and sort of this feeling of confusion and, and loss, not being able to connect. Oh, oh, absolutely, absolutely. I think that the number one thing that people want to have in their life uh, is this experience of, of, of truly being alive, if you will. But it's hard for a lot of people uh, to do that when in the background, maybe even unconsciously, as a lot of the existential psychologists think, that, that fear of death. 
Because even people who are very devout in their uh, religious uh, ideas to where they, they know that, that, that I'll be in heaven or, or wherever after death, only it seems those who have literally died and come back seem to have that, that true level of comfort. And it's because whether it's true or not, they experience that there is something after death. Now, it, it, it's so much easier in some ways to see life as in there, there's nothing after this and, and my body just decomposes and it's the cycle of life. There's some level of comfort, but our individual uh, quest to be remembered or to stay connected or to maintain what we perceive as a, our own personality, uh, that's, that's something that is very strong and I think drives a lot of people uh, to not just to, to hope that their loved ones are safe on the other side, but they themselves are safe. And even if they're not involved in directly in, um, uh, in afterlife uh, seances or things like that, even some of the uh, the more uh, like telepathy and those things, seeing, oh, our mind extends beyond our body. That gives me comfort because when my body's no longer working, then there's some part of me that can live on or, or to transcend. It's uh, like that uh, that part of the letter that uh, Thomas Jefferson wrote to John Adams where uh, Adams was in his final days and Jefferson wrote to him and said, well, how is Mr. Adams? And John Adams said, uh, oh, John Adams is doing fantastic. However, the house he's living in is old and dilapidated. You know, mm-hmm. So it's that idea that we are uh, a little more than just our bodies and that gives us great comfort. And uh, I think a lot of people are wanting some confirmation of that to maybe decrease the, the anxiety of, of living every day. Mm, yeah, it is anxiety-inducing. One quick question before you, you mm-hmm. hop into it, Dad. I want to take a quarter of a step back. What do you mean by truly being alive? Oh, that's that's a great question, and it's, it's totally different for each person. Um, for some people, being alive is... is uh, being present in the moment to where they feel like a, a connection to people and things other than themselves. Uh, we have these, um, what we call these, uh, I think Maslow, uh, Abraham Maslow, the psychologist, called peak experiences, where we felt like this almost euphoric connection to all kinds of life. And, you know, it, it may have been as like... Um, winning a, a certain uh, athletic event and you're on a high and, and, and there's the connection between you and others uh, and it doesn't seem as wide or it could be for some it's it's the moment of birth of seeing their child born it's this this I'm fully present in this moment nothing else uh, you know is going to sway me I would hope that most people as they see their baby come into the world they aren't thinking did I file that paper at the office you know I would hope not but that's that's kind of what I mean that that experience. But here's the problem: is that it's temporary, and when it's temporary and we can't live that euphoric, uh, even though some will tell you you can, and I'm very skeptical of that. Uh, you can't live that all the time. Then then it tends to make us uh, desire to have that and hope that we can have that even after we're gone on this experience of life. Well, I was uh, intrigued that you bring up uh, Jefferson and Adams, who were. Uh, bitter rivals politically through m- most of their lives, and then as they got older, uh, became friends when they realized mm-hmm. that there are things bigger than politics. And uh, they both translated, as we say, on uh, July 4th, 1826, the mm-hmm. same day. So mm-hmm. 
God has a sense of humor. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. So right. uh, on that note, why don't we take our break a little early because I want to get into some of the uh, more amazing uh, things that uh, Paul himself has experienced. Sure. So you're listening to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno. On WON 1240 AM, 99.5 FM in New England's beautiful Blackstone River Valley. We'll be right back with our great guest, Dr. Paul Leslie. So stay with us. The night is alive. Join us and take a walk on the weird side when you tune in to the Kingdom of Nye, hosted by Heather Wade. The finest in late night talk. Listen live free weeknights starting at 9 p.m. Pacific time at thekingdomofnigh.com, talkstreamlive.com, and the Paranormal Radio app. Want to take a ride? Local and live at 99.5 FM. And welcome back to Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno on WON 1240 AM and FM, uh, FM 99.5, as the man said. And we have Dr. Paul Leslie with us, and we're talking about the paranormal roots of psychology. Now, Paul, there's a, a very moving story in uh, the book, uh, Shadows in the Session, uh, and you've talked about this on the air before, but when I read it, it brought tears to my eyes. And th- this was your first, uh, maybe it's not your only since then, 2019 when the book was published, but could you describe the experience um, of the session with Janet a pseudonym, I, I take it, uh, and what happened to you and how you reacted to it. Uh, sure, and thank you for the kind comment, and I, I hope other people who read that had a similar reaction because that was certainly very profound for me. Uh, yes, I was working with a lady who I'm calling Janet as a pseudonym to protect her identity, and uh, we had been working for a good while. She was suffering from a, a severe mood disorder uh, known as bipolar 1, which uh, has intense uh, states of mania and some pretty horrific depression states. And she was struggling to just uh, provide for herself many times. And uh, so it was a pretty good day that we were uh, uh, working together. And something strange happened in that we started our session and she had uh, been missing her father because I think it had been Father's Day or something like that. Her father had passed away a couple of years prior. And, as we were talking, um, Janet was saying how she was wishing her father could see, uh, be proud of how far she'd come in her treatment and what she was doing in her life. And as I was sitting there with Janet, I uh, decided I would use a psychotherapy technique uh, from a, a type of therapy known as Gestalt therapy, which I used to would call the empty chair, meaning that when somebody can't be present in a therapy room, we have them talk to an empty chair, kind of like. As I pointed to the chair, I would say, uh, now, Janet, imagine that your father was sitting in this chair. What would you like to say to him now? As a way to get her to kind of just express these emotions, since unfortunately, I thought, uh, she couldn't talk to him directly anymore. And the second I said that, I felt a strange feeling that I have not felt since or before of literally an individual sitting down in that chair and I, I initially chalked it up to that I was being kind of maybe I was a little over dramatic in my delivery or whatever it was. And then I started to have this strange feeling come over me to where I just started crying. I can't put it into any, any other words. The feeling is just ad, started me crying. And then I started uh, finding myself saying to Janet, Janet, 
I think your father's in this chair, and I, I think he wants me to tell you he loves you or, or something like that. And then all of a sudden in my mind, I got a, um, a picture of a type of ice cream, uh, sherbet ice cream we call the push-up, where you just push up from the bottom and it comes up, and then a body of water like a lake. I just popped in my mind. And so instantly out of my mouth, I didn't even know, remember saying it, but I heard myself saying it. I said, what does a push-up mean to you? And Janet just, her face, I, I never seen her face. It's just it lightened at the same time she started crying because she's trying to figure out why I'm crying. And she says, oh, my God, my father always took me to the lake when I was a child. I didn't tell her about the lake I saw. Uh, and, and he would always get me a push-up. And I was a little girl, and I'd pretend it was like a lipstick, and I'd put it on my lips, and he'd just laugh, and I'd laugh. And that was kind of our thing when I was growing up. And at that point, um, I remember standing up, and then she stood up, and I embraced her, which is not something I do with my clients generally. I try to be somewhat professional there. But I felt like almost I was being pushed to do that. And I said, I feel like your your father's proud of you and that, that he's here. And the se- second I said or did that, it just disappeared. And I felt like I was, uh, you know, alone in the room with Janet. There was no one there anymore. So I sat down and tried to compose myself. And I think she tried to do the same. And it was toward the end of the session. And we left. And for the time that we continued to be in therapy together, neither of us talked about it again, which looking back on it was very odd. But uh, maybe we were both a little uncomfortable and maybe a lot mystified. But it was a very moving uh, session. As a matter of fact, as I, as I wrote in the uh, epilogue in the book, I ran into Janet right before I, that I sent off the the, uh, the book to the publisher. Uh, I ran into her at the store, and um, I, I shouldn't even ask, but I did. I said, do you remember? And before I ever got it out of my mouth, she says, about my father. And for her, that was one of the turning points of her therapy. Hmm. So apparently it helped her more than I realized, and that kind of helped basically keep her alive because we were struggling at that point in some ways and it was very effective and that's what kind of shook me up and changed the way i looked at the world slightly i'll say a lot (laughs) well it seems uh you know it could certainly be a minefield now was it at that point that you decided to seek out other psychotherapists to see what uh as you call them anomalous events had taken place with them and how did that go yeah, uh, at first I had to figure out whether I was crazy or not. Uh, and so that was uh, right after that happened, the first person I called was my mother, who is probably the most uh, rational person on the planet. And uh, she kind of listened to me and said, okay, son, I don't think you're crazy. I think you're very logical and reasonable. And said, well, maybe something just odd happened. And so... Didn't, I mean, it was helpful, but it didn't solve my overwhelming what's going on here. Uh, so I remember talking and sharing with a, a colleague I really trusted about, because I didn't know what to do with this. And then my colleague then disclosed that she, too, had had uh, one or two experiences similar to that and how she had to kind of work through that. And, and that led me to start saying, okay, I know this doesn't happen a lot in therapy. But when it does, how do we deal with it? And so it just led me to start putting out a, a blanket. I started with social media, just, hey, everyone, I'm doing a 
a little research. Has anyone had this? You know, email me privately, you know, personally. And then I, I was getting some really interesting, fascinating, and just downright bizarre stories. So I collected some of those that I put into the uh, the book, uh, Shadows in the Session. Uh, again, keeping everyone's name and uh, location uh, very vague so they could have their privacy, these therapists that were sharing things to me. As a matter of fact, uh, three days ago, I got an email from a lady in India who's a psychologist over there who had read the book, and she said it was so comforting because she'd had an experience that she couldn't explain. So if it's helping people to at least acknowledge that it, that people have this happen, regardless of why we think it happens, uh, then I'm very happy because I, I certainly was unsettled for a while. Okay. Uh, we have a question from our good friend Peter and co-host in uh, Bogota, Colombia. Yes. And if you'd be so kind. Well, two questions, and we will start one at a time. And the first one is, uh, Dr. Paul Leslie, have you ever collected or uh, any cases of the paranormal in connection with hypnotic regression? Uh, I, me personally, I have not had anything paranormal based, but I will tell you I've had uh, some colleagues uh, who've had some strange things happen, and they're people, again, I'm not going to name names, it's their story to tell, but uh, they're people who I was, I was actually kind of shocked uh, when they told me. Uh, one uh, gentleman, um, some man came to him for anxiety or some kind of issue like that, so he was using hypnosis. Uh, clinical hypnosis to to assist him, and then he he got into the the man into this trance state, and he was doing his work, and then all of a sudden the man started talking to him in a slightly different voice than he was used to, and the voice said, "You've already helped this man. The rest of the time we're here for you," and they began to tell my colleague private things about himself that no one else would know, and gave him. His purpose on Earth, uh, you know, why he was here, and, and and what what challenges he had going ahead for him, which uh, talking about being unnerved, uh, you know, by the time it, they said their piece, whoever they were, and he was able to bring the man back. The man had no knowledge of this ever happening, and uh, the uh, the colleague of mine was still mystified by by the whole thing, yet. You know, there's no way that this this man could have gotten some of, the, according to my colleague, gotten information about him, and that has kind of sh- shook his paradigm up a little bit. Other times, uh, people have talked about um, there's a lot of disassociation, so people will talk about you know there's disembodied spirits that get attached to them, but most psychologists believe those are uh, just kind of a disassociative quality like you see in uh, dissociative identity disorder, which we call multiple personality. Mm-hmm. But uh, but those things can indeed happen. Uh, and the second question is, uh, well, I guess you kind of started answering this, but we'll, we'll expand on a little more. What is your view on the validity of hypnosis to recover uh, paranormal memories? Well, uh, to be fair, I, I don't think uh, hypnosis is a very... Um, accurate tool for uh, memories. Uh, the, the psychologist uh, Elizabeth Loftus uh, has pretty much shown this for a lot of her research because our memories uh, are so fallible and so easily swayed that we have to be very careful. Right. Now, if in a treatment a client gets a memory back that's either paranormal or non-paranormal and it helps them, 
we still have to you, we can use it, but we still have to be very uh, careful because uh, there's a big thing in the 1980s. Uh, a lot of people may remember it was all this false memory uh, fad that was going on. And many psychologists were uh, front and center saying, be careful with this, that just because you get something under a hypnotic regression doesn't mean that it's true. Because if we're taking in information from all different sides, uh, it's, it's, we, we don't know whether what we're remembering is something that's really happened to us or something that's happened to us that's been embellished or subtracted. So I, I, I would say that we, we just have to be uh, careful. If it's helpful for the client, that's fine. But uh, there's been too many things in the past where people have been accused of doing things that they haven't done and they're trying to use as evidence some of these uh, hypnotic regressions. So uh, buyer beware, I guess we'll say. Mm. You know, I, I really have to agree with that. Um, when I first came into the field in 1970, uh, hypnosis was taken seriously and then it fell into disrepute and, you know, in the sense, paranormal sense. And uh, now it's back. And, of course, it's it's relied upon as gospel when you have uh, alien abduction situations and people remember all these things. However, what, what, what kind of gets my attention is when you have people who have uh, supposedly shared the same experience, whether it be an abduction or whatever, and uh, are, are regressed, quote-unquote, separately and have the same responses. I mean, what say you to that? Does that add validity or is there some other explanation for it? Well, uh, if, if, well, again, the explanation, we have to step outside the realm. Uh, if it's legitimate, we have to step outside the realm of a, a materialist uh, perspective of how the brain works. Mm. So, um, and, and that's why I still struggle with the idea that I was uh, talking to a dead person in my therapy room. I'm still not comfortable with that. I tend to think that sometimes in certain emotional and mental states, there's a, a little leakage, if you will, into other people's emotional states. So in that example of me with my client Janet, it may be that we were both in a certain state that I was picking up things out of her grid of uh, information that surrounded her, almost like a, um, um, uh, how do we say, a, I guess a telepathic kind of process. So it may be the case when we're regressing people in different uh, things there may be a telepathic quality, or they regressed, and again, this is pure conjecture on my part, that their conscious mind relaxes to a point to where their unconscious can access uh, different realms of information. I mean, we've seen with psychedelics, uh, everyone thought that the prefrontal cortex, which is our thinking, that would speed up and all, but they found that that actually, when you're under psychedelic, that dies down. So it's other parts of the brain that are creating these amazing journeys that some people have, and some are terrifying. But so I, I just think that if it's not uh, strictly the hypnosis, maybe the hypnosis is a tool that allows people to maybe get on the same um, transpersonal wavelength to where they can pick up those those bits of information. But again, that's conjecture. Mm. Yeah. No. It. it but. It's it's informed by experiences, I, I'd say, and I, I think that's that's important. Um, there's a really interesting. Uh, I, I've I've been taking it a little deep dive back into into sort of ancient Greek thought, and there was a really fascinating way how they viewed things because there were sort of four different ways that you knew stuff, um, and one of them actually was public opinion, which is kind of funny because we hear <laughs> we hear opinion now and we're like, oh, that's 
no, oh, it's not real, it's all relative. And it's like, well, no, because you have data that you get, but you still have to interpret it <laughs> with opinion. <laughs> so you can't really you can't really win. Because even if you do have a bunch of scientific data, you can say, well, you know, numbers of blah, 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 but you still have to interpret it. Um, that's right. my little spiel on that. Anyway, I, I think it's interesting that you bring, bring up materialism, um, because scientific materialism is sort of a, a, a box we've built around ourselves over the last 200 years or so. Actually, I'd argue maybe three, 400 years. And um, it's really hurt us a lot <laughs> in the long run because now, um, you know, we're, we're supposedly the most, you know, enlightened, you know, generation of our, of our time, you know, over the last, but arguably the last 150 years have been the bloodiest in human history. So <laughs> shows how enlightened we are, huh? Cool. Um are you familiar with The Body Keeps the Score, the book by um, uh, Besser van der Kolk? Yeah, Bessel van der Kolk, yes. Yeah, I've actually uh, met him several times, and we sometimes present at the uh, same conferences. Yeah, it's, oh, a, wow. it's an amazing book. Yeah, yeah, it's really it's really interesting, and I, I find it's fascinating because as I've been doing a deep dive back into ancient Greek thought, um, and even older than that, there was this sort of funny idea that there were not just physical organs but spiritual ones. That you you perceive things not just with the brain but with different parts of your body. So the heart, the spleen, all that stuff. If you if you look at the ancient Greek, um, if you ever get a chance <laughs> to look at ancient Koinian Greek, um, the word they use in uh, the Septuagint when they say, "Oh, Christ, you know, had, shows compassion to them," they, it, it literally means spleen. That's, so that's a translation of the Bible, folks. Yes, Septuagint. Yeah. The Septuagint is a, is a Greek translation of the Bible. But if you look at, uh, they, they, you know, it's like oh, so Christ spleened on people. It's kind of a fun little joke, but it's interesting because it shows this idea that. There, there's sort of this idea of, of spiritual organs as well as physical ones, and it's all kind of part of, of the same thing. Now, the interesting thing with trauma, and I, I'm going to relate this to sort of um, the very traumatic experience of not just having to deal with, with you know, a- alien abductions, we'll put that in quotes, or just abductions in general, right? That whole, that whole phenomena. It's a traumatic experience, but even having to deal with... Um, you know, say hearing voices in your house or something that's just so out of the quote unquote normal, right? Something that's so out of joint with the rest of reality that that's traumatic, and it's mm-hmm. and it's all all part of this experience, and it's it's traumatic when your paradigm changes. But it's how does one incorporate it into their life? So, do you believe that it's that all of this is part of a disordered person's life or something that throws it off? Is there a key factor you can point? No, I want to say a key factor. We'll say a sort of generalized sort of factor that kind of comes into play that sort of throws everything into this jointed order and brings in this trauma. Uh, trauma, as far as these kind of things that we're talking about, uh, I find that a lot of the research I've been reading uh, talks about that uh, trauma can... Uh, Filter your your perception of reality in in some really fascinating ways. At the same time, uh, a study I was reading out of Holland says that uh, more quote unquote normal people, if you'll forgive me, uh, have uh, auditory and vi- visual hallucinations than we think. Mm. So in some cultures, uh, you know, having these kind of symptomology, uh, as as long as it's not destroying your life, it's a, it's a little. Uh, 
it's a little less uh, reactive, I think, than, than our culture here. Uh, you mentioned like the body keeps score. When traumatic things happen to us, uh, uh, Cult's whole idea of um, that there is the body saying, okay, I'm registering this event, and I'm registering at this deep level of the unconscious mind, and at that level is, is the body, you know, because we don't think about beating our heart. It does it, you know, on a, on a nervous system, does it automatically. Mm. And it stores that information. And that's why sometimes people who have been traumatized one way or another, well, they're on a massage table and, and everything's fine. All of a sudden they release a muscle uh, by the massage therapist and relax and then tears come. So it, it's, it is not un. Uh, common at all. I wanted to just bring up one and tie into kind of where you were talking about earlier, Ben, about materialism and those kind of things. I also want to let people know uh, that sometimes when we, we say this idea of, you know, the scientific and, and people who, who study the, the psychical realm and, and all of that, uh, we still have a long history in the 20th and moving to the 21st century of people being in both camps. So mm. I, I think Sometimes it's real easy for us to do an us and them, which is, you know, normal. But, you know, Hans Berger, the guy who created the EEG machine, he feels he got that idea through telepathy. Einstein in 1962 wrote that he says, I'm very open to ESP research and there's a lot of validity to it. The British scientist Alan Turing said he felt there was totally evidence and it was overwhelming for ESP. Uh, G. Spencer Brown, a brilliant mathematician who wrote the classic law of forms, felt the that the evidence that's been collected is empirically sound, and even he found it cast down on classical frequency probabilities. And the father of uh, modern scientific uh, philosophy, Karl Popper, he felt all this stuff exists, but he was skeptical of if, if we could ever measure it. Mm. So I just wanted to say real quickly that, that it's not always the case. And, and if you watch enough YouTube or social media, some groups will want you, want you to think that if you, if you say, hey, this is interesting, then you're not being scientific. A real scientist wouldn't even look at that. Well, I just named, I don't know, five or six. Uh, I can name more that 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 are open to it. So it, it's I don't think it's it's this big divide as some people would have us uh, believe. Okay, well on that note, please tell us uh, about the book, where people can find out more about you, your website, etc. Okay, great, thanks. Uh, my website's Dr. Paul Leslie. That's D R P A U L L E S L I E dot com. Uh, you find the books there. Also, the usual uh, cast of characters at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and uh, those kind of places. Okay, great. Now, maybe in our last few minutes here, um, how do we retain? We mentioned the minefield before. How do we maintain uh, someone in your position critical thinking while adequately treating people with what has always been thought of? as magical thinking that has some solidity behind it. Uh, I will, uh, I'll take a, uh, a leaf from uh, Sherlock Holmes in which he said you have to, to uh, look at all angles. And when you've exhausted everything, I think then it's perfectly reasonable to, to do that. So, for example, my, my, my personal first thing is I, I didn't, even though it was a strange experience, uh, very strange, I didn't want to initially think that there's a dead person in the room or I'm channeling spirits, which for the record, I'm not. So if anyone's listening, don't call me to channel your, your <laughs> deceased loved ones. I, that's not my, not my uh, skill there. 
But uh, I had to go through and, and, and look at all kinds of things, which led me to start looking about the mind being non-local. Um, and, and it is a fascinating paradigm we're in, in that you look at the quantum field and the studies and all of this that I know you guys are having uh, um, uh, Tom Campbell as a future guest uh, on your program. And he, he's, his ideas and theories about how this all works are very reasonable and, and logical if, if you look at it from a quantum perspective. But then it's like uh, some folks will say, yes, that quantum stuff exists, but in all these other realms, it doesn't exist. So it's almost like a disconnect uh, for some. And so you have to be open to, to maybe even looking outside your field and saying, okay, well, if if I've exhausted all of this, it, it's kind of like when you guys do investigation, you know, someone says, I live in this 300-year-old farmhouse, and every now and then I hear this knock and this creak, and you're kind of like, okay, I, I, it's not... I have to go through this list of everything before I can even remotely say that you have a disembodied entity. And I think exactly. the same thing is in our field. But uh, unfortunately, the rush to believe, uh, which we see now with a lot of the um, uh, so-called paranormal investigators you see on television, that's why I like you guys, because you're very... Uh, rational and logical, and, and even if people disagree with you, you, you're kind of open to input. Whereas some folks, they're they're so married to the idea that it has to be supernatural mm. that unfortunately they put themselves in a precarious uh, situation sometimes. Well, thank you. That is what we try and do. Sometimes a dream is just a dream. Right. That's right. right. So, what's next for you, Paul? Well, uh, I wish I could say retirement, but uh, <laughs> I'll be working for many years. Uh, I think what's next for me uh, is is this strange journey to where I try to understand uh, more about my field, and I, I find that uh, the the field of psychology is so vast that there's so much to learn that I can never uh, never run out of things to do. But particularly the area that we're talking about has to tie into consciousness and that's where lately i've been doing a lot of my research and reading Mm -hmm. consciousness is not something that uh i thought i'd be spending a lot of time with um uh, early in my career but the idea that could it be possibly that our mind uh travels uh in 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 different directions than than we we think it uh does and and just i i think being open to, to new theories is, I think, is a is a mark of progress on my part. Because whereas years ago I would, I was definitely in the camp. It doesn't exist. That's nonsense. Move on, you know. But uh, I think uh, the good thing is I've probably become a lot more open minded. And uh, as the old saying is, we just got to be careful that the mind isn't so open that the brain falls out. <laughs> exactly. Mm. Now you're familiar with with the the work of our mutual friend uh, Anthony Peak. Oh, yes, yeah. In England, yeah. yeah. Uh, Tony, Tony's a brilliant, brilliant researcher. Some of his things really push my uh, my comfort level because he, he's willing to go that extra step. But it is his work, particularly where he looks at this from a neurological uh, basis, mm. a lot of this, uh, is really fascinating. That's it, and the, the notions of perpendicular time and all this. We're very nervous about the idea of disembodied spirits first of all physicists have told us that's not possible under right. the laws of physics here anyway so there have to be other explanations and uh we think if somebody's dead they'd be dead wouldn't be right. doing anything 
mm-hmm. whereas uh, we don't, you know, Anthony Peake is correct and some of the ideas, there is no such thing as death in any real sense in the multiverse, if, if that's true. So mm-hmm. uh, we've just made a kind of scratch on the surface here, Paul, with your amazing topic and book. As always. As always. <laughs> and uh, we'll be in touch with you off the air, as we always are. And uh, we may be working on something uh, kind of cool coming up uh, yeah. in the next year or so. So we'll, we'll see. But, Paul, yeah. thank you so much. And uh, all the best in your work. Uh, and we'll be in touch, as we always are. Well, Ben and Paul, anytime I get to talk with you guys is always an enjoyable experience, and, and thanks for having me again. Take care. Well, well thanks thank for having, have, having being with us. <laughs> Absolutely. So, Ben, take away the announcements. Yes, and we have plenty of them. And first of all, we look forward to the New England Parafest uh, that's uh, coming up. That's a big marathon event that's coming up in uh, April over here, uh, April 10th through the 26th. Uh, our part uh, will involve a live broadcast with a panel of speakers on our April 10th show, including Mike Stevens, Andrew Lake, and Matt Moniz. Uh, then on April 23rd, uh, my dad will present at the Community Center in Kittery, Maine. Uh, the subject will be Working with Ed and Lorraine Warren. Uh, this event will benefit the historic Hilldale uh, Cemetery in Haverhill, Massachusetts. Ben might be with me. Um but he wasn't even born when that happened, so oh. he might not. He might be man a few words that day if he does come. Anyway, we'll we'll hope for the best. Yes. Um, and the uh, Exeter UFO Festival is finally back. Very happy to say, after a two-year hiatus, uh, that will center at the historic Exeter, New Hampshire Town Hall over the Labor Day weekend, September third and fourth. More information will be forthcoming. Uh, we're hoping to do our uh, September fourth live show from there, as we've done uh, at least before the two-year. Uh, covid uh recess uh we did i think it was for four years it's it's gonna be our fifth or sixth annual uh live show from there that would be really great Mm. and to say more information will be forthcoming it's a great event sponsored by the exeter area kiwanis club to benefit local children's charities we plan to do our traditional live broadcast uh from there on sunday there as i say with the panel of the speakers the subject of our talk will be time storms with thanks to the great British researcher Jenny Randalls, who coined that term. It's funny, I'm working with a lady in Florida right now who's going through that. Mm. She didn't know there was a term for what was happening to her. Yeah. What weird time slips and all. It's very interesting. Yeah, yes, lots of uh, synchronicities. As yes, uh, the Exeter event is very fun. A whole downtown gets involved. Restaurants serve things like Roswell Burgers, Final Frontier Franks, and Alien Cruncher Ice Cream. More information to come. Yes, and uh, you can also visit our show website, BehindTheParanormal.com, where you can find over 1,000 hours of our regular shows, uh, special broadcasts since 2008 from CBS Radio, Achieve Radio, and here on WOON, AM, and FM, uh, including those that have been restored in the archives at BehindTheParanormal.com. And uh, you can also hear us uh, on many of the uh, major podcast platforms. Platforms that includes um, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, and all those great places that you can find your podcasts. And you download our show app; it's free at behindtheparanormal.com, and uh, stuff will pop up: uh, links to download our shows, links to the uh, video here on the station website, and uh, links to just to play it. So. I uh, can check that out uh, behind the paranormal.com. So what do we have uh, for next week, Ben? So next week uh, we have on March 27th, just blazing right through March, uh, we'll welcome back the great Kevin Randall for a look at the little-known Level Land, Texas UFO incident of 1957. Yes, uh, that's it was apparently a crash that was hushed up. 
So, I mean, whoever Jeez, heard of that. How many crashes happened? were there? <laughs> I don't know. These aliens can't fly very well. If no, that, if that's no. what it is. Yeah, there would be a few FAA violations in there at one point. Um, <laughs> no, they really should have put some landing lights in, in the middle of, middle of New Mexico, <laughs> Texas, all sorts of places. Most isolated. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> anyway, I suppose we shouldn't make fun. Uh, anyway, uh, we'll leave you today with a thought from uh, none other than William Shakespeare from As You Like It. The fool doth think he is wise, but the wise man knows himself to be a fool. Mm. Very wise, actually. Yes. Yes. Paraphrasing of Socrates. That's right. I'm Paul Eno. And I'm Ben Eno. And thanks for joining us on our great cosmic journey. And we shall see you next time on Behind the Paranormal. Return to this radio frequency 167 hours from now for another edition of Behind the Paranormal with Paul and Ben Eno.